Good morning again. I hope you have a Bible with you to open it up to the very first page. Uh, we're going to start right at the beginning today. Has anyone ever said to you something along the lines of this? You ain't from here, are you? <laughs> this happens to us uh, occasionally downtown at the little coffee shop uh, where, you know, we'll have like, because of our federal courthouse in downtown Marshall, we'll have attorneys come in from like Google and Samsung and, and they'll walk in to get coffee. And it's just like, you know, it's like an old West scene where, you know, the wrong guy walks into the saloon and everybody kind of turns and looks and they go, you ain't from around here, are you? <laughs> you just know, you just can tell, right? You know, where you're from matters. How many of you moved to Marshall or this area, East Texas, from out of the country? Did anyone move from out of the United States? Yes, there's a couple. I knew we would have at least Martin. I knew I had you, man. Okay, very good. Yeah, maybe a few more. Did anyone move to East Texas from, uh, let's say, somewhere outside of the state? Maybe somewhere within the other 50, 49 states. Okay, a good number of people. A good number of people. Thank you for finally coming to Texas. This is, you're in the right place. How many of you moved here from out of the county? Okay, and then maybe like from with. I'm, I'm an example of originally from within the county, but eventually moved to Marshall. Anybody else with me? Like you're close enough, but you weren't like a Marshall person or you're just here in the county. Okay. Where you're from matters. Like it shapes who you are. It shapes uh, all things about you, like how you think, uh, how you look at the world, uh, what you might believe about how the world works or even just how life works in general, how you speak. How you act, all of these things are shaped by where you are from. It matters. It matters. But today, the Bible is going to answer for us a question that's so much bigger than where are you from. The question that we're going to answer today from the Bible is not just where are you from, but where are we all from? And not just all of us in the room, but all humanity. Where are we all from? That's the question. And what difference does it make for our lives? Because it certainly does make a difference. So open your Bibles, like I said, to page one, Genesis chapter one, uh, verse one is where we're going to start. We're going to begin walking through the book of Genesis. It's going to take us, you know, with holidays and things like that, about a year. So kind of buckle up. We're going to be in Genesis for a while. We'll take a few breaks here and there. But, uh, but lock in with us and begin to study Genesis with us. Read it on your own uh, and come back to church ready uh, to talk about Genesis when we open the Word of God together. Uh, so the book of Genesis is at the beginning uh, of the Bible because it is the story of the beginning. In fact, that word Genesis simply means beginnings. It's the beginning of uh, everyone and everything. It's the beginning of uh, the story of God's people. Uh, it's the beginning of God's plan and story of redemption. It's the beginning of, in fact, the entire story of the Bible. The first two pages of the Bible and the last two pages of the Bible are like mirror images of one another just happening at different times. It's fascinating that God would put this in this place for this time so that we would begin to see what he intended the world to be and then not just what happened after creation, but then what ultimately will happen at the very end of time. It's the beginning. 
So it is the beginning of the entire Bible. It's also the beginning of the first five books of the Bible, which is a special collection of books to the Jewish people uh, called the Pentateuch. That just means the five books of the law. And so Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, those five books right at the front of your Bible, they all go together. They all kind of tell one big meta story. And this is at the beginning. It was at the beginning to tell the complete story to the Israelite people of where they came from and why it mattered. It's kind of like the preamble to the United States Constitution. You know how we have this Constitution and this little preamble that talks about how we are, you know, uh, we're, we're special <laughs> and uh, we deserve to be treated humanely and all these things. So the preamble to the Constitution is sort of like what Genesis is to the rest of the Bible. It, it distinguishes this people group from any other people group. It distinguishes God's people from everyone else so that it can teach them who they are to God for sure, but more importantly, so that it can teach them who God truly is. This is what Genesis is about, because the Israelites were not pagan like their neighbors or the people who conquered them and took them into exile. The Israelites were not polytheists. They didn't believe in many gods. Even though, as we just sang about, our God is three in one, and we see right in the beginning from Genesis chapter 1, all three of God's persons present in God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, it's all there. But we believe there's one God. He is one God. And so the Israelites believed that. They weren't polytheists. They were monotheists. They weren't mythologists. They didn't look to stories. They didn't look to, uh, to myths to explain their existence. And so what Genesis does is Genesis counteracted the opposing and imposing forces of culture and false religion to teach the Israelites who they were to the one true God, but more importantly, who God truly is. This is what Genesis is. So Genesis takes us to our deepest roots. And that's the point. So open your Bible to Genesis 1. We'll read together Genesis today. We'll just cover the first three verses, and that's it. Next week, uh, in fact, in the next two weeks, we'll talk about creation uh, through the rest of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2. But today, we're talking about the first three verses. Chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. In the beginning, God. See, the first thing we learn about our roots is that we aren't from a place. We're from a person. That God is the beginning. Yeah, you may have moved here from somewhere. You may be even, even be able to trace your family lineage as far back as Ancestry.com will take you. Maybe you're related to someone famous somewhere in history. Maybe if we had the powerful enough tools, we could all trace every person on this planet, our humanity, back to the first humans, Adam and Eve. But there was still a history beyond that. And who was there? It was God. In the beginning, God. 
These four words, they set the stage for the entire creation story at the beginning of Genesis, but they also set the stage for the entire Bible and for life itself. Everything hinges on whether or not this is true. In the beginning, God. If it's true, it changes everything. It changes how we see the world. It changes how we understand our purpose and our meaning and our existence and our history and our future. It changes everything from understanding how we breathe and live to what our work should be like to how we should treat our families. Everything comes from these four words in the beginning, God. If it's true, there's meaning, there's purpose to our entire existence. But if it's not true, if in the beginning God is not true, then nothing matters. Life has no meaning. There is no existence prior to or beyond this very moment. But the Bible starts with God. So everything matters. Everything matters. The next word in Genesis 1-1 tells us what God is. God is the creator of everyone and everything. Now, this word for create is a unique Hebrew word that is only ever applied to God uh, and not ever applied to people. Now, people certainly can create things, but the way we create is to make. Uh, it's a little bit different. God creates, humanity makes. Um, last week, I made a coffee table. Uh, Jill's father uh, it was at an estate sale with her. This is just what they do. They go to estate sales, and he's kicking around the backyard of an estate sale, and he uncovers these old piano legs, like half buried in the dirt. And I just feel like only my family would say, yes, I want to take those home uh, and do something with them. And so it didn't surprise me at all when I showed up at home and in the driveway is these four beat up old piano legs that are covered in dirt and, you know, muck and this kind of stuff. And, and Jill goes, I have an idea. <laughs> and I'm like, great, let's do it. Uh, so then I just reclaimed some old lumber from some other projects that were uh, hanging out in the garage and I made a coffee table. But the thing is that I made that thing, one thing out of some things. But the Bible says God created all things out of nothing. Which is to say, the heavens and the earth. If God created the heavens and the earth, the entire cosmos, from the farthest distant galaxy to the tiniest bacteria, right? From things unreachable by our best telescopes to things unseeable by our best microscopes. All of this existed only in the mind of God before he brought them to be. In the beginning, God. Now, this kind of like making thinking about telescopes and microscopes and the cosmos and heavens and earth, and it sort of makes me think science. Uh, and it would be, there's actually a lot of really good, good history and research and indication that there is some scientific answers here in Genesis chapter 1. But I want to show you how Genesis 1 wasn't answering questions of science because the Israelites weren't asking those questions, nor was anybody on the planet at that time. Now, certainly there are 
Answers here in Genesis. In fact, there's a ministry called Answers in Genesis, which is highly reputable, and you can go online to their website and find some explanation about uh, science and how the world works based on the biblical account. I would encourage you to do that. But the, the question that the Israelites uh, were asking was not about science. It was about something much more personal to them. Because having been enslaved in Egypt for centuries, then wandering in the wilderness, finally settling in the region of Canaan, and then exiled to Babylon, the Israelites didn't need to know how old the earth was or whether or not, you know, any other question that we tend to look to Genesis to answer, which answers may be there, they simply needed to be reminded that God created. This is the point. That as opposed to these neighboring false religions and pagan ways and multiple gods and all the, as opposed to all the forces of culture and false religion that were surrounding them and imposing on them, they needed to be reminded that God created. So, in the beginning, God means that unlike the Babylonian gods, per se, the one true God has no competition or conflict. Babylonian stories about how the world came to existence were all centered around conflict between these make-believe gods, that they would have to fight one another, and that it was out of their, uh, their conflict or sometimes out of romance uh, that things would end up coming to be. But all of that presupposes that there were things that already were, and there were multiple gods at play. They're just stories trying to reach to an explanation from humanity up to the divine. But what the Bible does is it starts with the divine and says, this is where humanity is from. So we don't have to reach up or use our imagination or create con- or contrive some story about what might have happened because the Bible says we know. In the beginning, God. So God had no competition. He wasn't in conflict. He stood alone and stands alone. God was in no hurry. There was was nobody coming after him that he would have to do something in order to get away. These are stories that were circulating around Israel at the time they're receiving the book of Genesis for the first time. God, instead of being in a hurry, was calm and confident, creating like a master craftsman. Every detail mattered. Unlike the Egyptian gods, for instance, uh, the one true God is not contained to any one aspect of creation, but is before and bigger than all creation. So he can't simply be a sun deity or a star deity because he created the heavens. He can't simply be a land deity or a sea deity because he created the earth. This is what Genesis 1-1 teaches us. Now, ancient people were convinced that there was something beyond this universe, something beyond time, something bigger than we can explain. Every ancient culture tried to develop a story about how things came to be, and it always related to something superhuman. But today, modern people don't have those same kind of inklings, do they? We don't naturally drift toward the supernatural. We actually naturally assume the natural. This is how humanity operates today. We want to reduce things to what we can see, what we can touch, what we can feel, what we can know. And so thus, the common 
thread in thinking today among modern people is that this world is all there is, that there wasn't something before, uh, there wasn't anyone before, and there won't be anything after, or there won't be anyone after. It just is. But the Bible counteracts that. The Bible says that in the beginning, God, meaning that as Christians, we have a countercultural understanding of how the world came to be, exists, and ultimately will end. We are in opposition to our world. Now, the Israelites were as well, but not because of supernatural versus natural, but because of the true supernatural versus other supernaturals. We are in opposition to the world because we believe firmly, continually, that God existed before, that it was only by His power that we came to be, that anything came to be. And the story continues from there. God, in Genesis 1, created. But Genesis 1 isn't just about that God created. It's actually how the creation of God reveals God the creator or the God of creation. Listen to what the psalmist writes in Psalm chapter 19, verse 1. The psalms are great. It's like, it's kind of like if we had hymnals in our chairs, which we don't have pews or racks or anything in here. So if you grew up in church, maybe you remember you sitting in front in church and there's a hymnal in front of you. And if the sermon got boring, you'd pick it up and you'd kind of flip through it. Uh, so the Psalms are kind of like hymnals to the Jewish people. They, they told history. Uh, they, they told about God. They, they were poetic. They were songs to be sung, prayers to be prayed together to remind them of where they came from and who they were, right? Same, similar to what Genesis is doing for the Israelites. So Psalm chapter 19, verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the expanse proclaims the work of His hands. So the creation of God reveals the God of creation. We're from a person, not a place, and we can know that person because of the revelation of God. I was with uh, Pastor Andrew last week talking about these verses uh, over on our Long Beach campus, and he asked me if I had ever seen a painting uh, by Clara Peters called Still Life with Cheeses, Almonds, and Pretzels. Uh, <laughs> I'm not the art enthusiast in our family, um, so the answer was an obvious no. No, I have not. Even if I was an art enthusiast, I don't know that I would have seen a painting called Still Life with Cheeses, Almonds, and Pretzels. Um, do we have that picture, Matt? We got that? Check this out. I know that this is what comes to your mind when you think of beautiful uh, art, and uh, you probably knew already the name Clara Peters. Raise your hand if you did. No, see, you don't want to be outed now, okay? So, no, I says, no, I have not seen this painting. Uh, why do you ask? And he uh, shows me this picture and says, well, do you see anything interesting? And I said, it looks like bad food. Uh, I don't know. So then he zoomed in. Let's show the next picture. He zoomed in on the very top of that red jar, which was in the back. Do you see what's there? It's a reflection, and it was this aha moment. And I was like, dude, where did you find this? It's like, are you that into art? And he was like, not really, but I read about it in a book. So, Clara Peters 
in this tiny little section of her painting, Still Life with Cheeses, Almonds, and Pretzels, paints a self-portrait in a piece of metal that acts as a reflection. Now, Genesis 1 isn't just a description of creation. It's a reflection of the Creator. Just like Clara Peter's painting reflected the painter, Genesis 1 isn't just a description. It's a reflection of the Creator. So several months ago, Andrew and I were sitting down talking about Genesis and how we were going to lay out the sermon series, and we started talking about Genesis 1. uh, And uh, he already had some notes on this, and so he pulled like an ultimate preacher move on me. In fact, he was like, I mean, he might as well have just said, like, you know what, uh, until you can do more alliteration than this, then I got the one up on you. But he had six Ps already, like several months ago, six Ps, P words, of things that we learn about God the Creator from Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. And I just said to go, yeah, you're right, man. I can't do better than that. I mean, I try to alliterate as much as I can, but six, that's pretty incredible. So here's what he said. I want you to hear this. The ultimate preacher move, right? Six Ps. God is present. God is present. God didn't lob creation into existence from a distance. He is here. Verse 2 tells us that even before he gave the earth its shape, like a sculptor with a block of clay, even in the midst of chaos, which is what that idea of watery depths communicates, God was there. You saw it. God the Spirit is hovering. He's present. He's over it. He's in control. Nothing is out of hand. And yes, there's chaos, but it's chaos that's about to be developed. And in that, He is there, calmly present, not chaotic. And the story of the Bible is that He continues to be present. God did not, as some deists might say, wind up the clock of creation and then let it go until the battery runs out. God did not spin creation into motion like a top and walk away. But instead, the book of Colossians confirms this in our New Testament that God maintains and sustains and keeps creation going and that it's all wrapped up in Him That creation without his presence would not be possible. Colossians chapter 1 tells us that Jesus is all over, over all creation. That Jesus, that everything created was created by Jesus. That everything created was created through Jesus and for Jesus. And that by Jesus, all things hold together. So without God... Creation falls apart. It crumbles into chaos. From the beginning to now to the end, Jesus is the thing that holds everything together. God is present. And without God's constant presence, there is no creation. God is previous. We talked about in the beginning God, but before everything, anything ever was, God is. There's now... Nowhere you will go that God is not yet. There is no work that you can do that God has not already started. God is previous. If in the beginning God is true, God is previous. That means that when I have to do 
something difficult in ministry. Just talk to someone who's hurting. Uh, talk to someone who's going through divorce or whatever it is. That when I walk into that conversation, God is already there. I don't have to wonder where he is. When you step into a situation where you want to tell someone about Jesus and you're going, I don't know if I can do it. I don't know if I'm going to have all the right words. I don't know if I'm going to remember the right scriptures. You can remember God is previous. God is already there. He's ahead of you. The Bible would say he's before you. He's in front of you. This is what in the beginning God speaks to. And there's no work that we can do that God has not already started. I love how Psalms 4 and 5 describe that when we go to sleep, God remains at work. Even while we are at rest, while we have no control over anything, God is perfectly in control of everything and working ahead. God is powerful. Um, God came to be known to the Hebrew people by several names. Uh, several years ago, we did a great series through the names of God. I love studying the names of God all throughout the Bible. But the name that shows up 35 times in the first 35 verses or so of God in Genesis is the name Elohim. Elohim. It's what he's called here in verse 1 and 2. It's the Hebrew name, which means supreme. It means sovereign. It means almighty. That he's over all. That he's all-powerful. And so they're calling him this. They're, they're calling themselves to remember who God is, that he is sovereign and supreme and almighty. Every culture and religion surrounding the Israelites championed some sort of God, a sun God, a sky God, a sea God. But God reveals himself not as a product of creation, but as the supremely powerful God who created everything. So God is not deduced from creation, but he instead created all things from nothing, as we've said. So nothing can compete with his power. God's powerful. God is provider. Uh, we'll talk more about this in the next sermon as we get deeper into the creation story. But take note of the phrase in verse 2, formless and empty. In fact, you kiddos in the room, I got a, I got a Hebrew. I'm going to teach you some Hebrew this morning. It's a fun one to say, okay? Because you can even say it back. Say this with me. Tohu fabohu. Tohu fabohu. You got it? Now you know Hebrew, okay? Sounds like something you might say when someone sneezes. I don't know. But. Tohu fabohu is this phrase. It's a poetic phrase. It's, uh, it, it's, it's got that rhyme in it, and it uh, means formless and empty. And what we're seeing in Genesis 1 and 2 is that God not only created the forms for creation, he then fills them with good things. And I will see next week. The first three days of creation, God makes the forms. The, third, the second three days of creation, God fills the forms. And everything is good. God is provider. God is providential. As God creates out of his power the heavens and the earth, the entire cosmos, everything beyond our telescopes and smaller than what our microscopes can see, verse 3 tells us what God says goes. What God says goes, that he is in charge of everything, that he oversees everything. And then in creation, we also see that God is a proclaimer. Verse 3 again, and God said, God speaks. God speaks. He is not silent. He's not distant. Even when mankind rejects the word of God, 
God brings about redemption through his word. Think about this. God speaks, uh, that theme's repeated over and over again in chapter 1. We'll see it next week and the week after, but it doesn't stop there. The Bible continues to tell the story of God speaking. And when God speaks into creation, uh, then God speaks into his people. Uh, We just studied the Ten Commandments earlier this year. God continues to speak through prophets. God continues to speak. Now in the New Testament, we see through Jesus Christ his word. The blessing of God came, through, came to creation through his word. And as the gospel of John declares in our New Testament, the blessing of salvation comes from God through his word. John chapter 1 says, In the beginning was the word. Speaking about Jesus. The word was with God and the word was God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Indeed, we have all received grace upon grace from his fullness. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the one and only Son, who is himself God and is at the Father's side. He has revealed him. So do you see how God has painted himself into the portrait of creation and continues to reveal himself not only through the story of creation, but through the story of redemption that he is bringing about through his son, Jesus Christ. This is God, the artist of creation. Romans, in the New Testament, chapter 1, verse 20, the Apostle Paul says that his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. And as a result, people are without excuse. So the question is, not do we just believe God created, but do we acknowledge who he is in the reality that he is? It's not just that he created, but then he reveals who he is. And and frankly, we have to reckon with that. Romans chapter 1, if you go and look at that passage, what the Apostle Paul is talking about, it would be as if he was writing it to the year 2023. He's talking about sexuality. He's talking about identity. He's talking about things that we deal with right here and right now. And he doesn't say, well, just, you know, God made you to be, you know, he says, look at creation. Because God is before and all things are created by him. And he's saying in the beginning, God is true. And because those four words are true, everything has meaning after that. And we have to reckon with this reality as humanity that we are in a world that we did not create. We're in a world that we do not sustain. We are in a world that we cannot bring to an end. And so our lives must come under submission of God, the in the beginning God, God, Elohim, the all-powerful supreme God. We have to submit our lives to him in the same way that creation itself is under his control and sovereignty and leadership. So do we acknowledge him? Are we willing to turn away from our own ways and submit ourselves to God's ways? Because that's what's necessary if in the beginning God is true. 
this makes an eternal difference. And I know people today would go, well, just let me be me. Just let me make my own decisions. And the reality is that your decisions lead somewhere. And if God is our beginning, he must also be our end. This is the reality. It's the idea the Greeks put forward called telos. It's not just the end as in like the doomsday when everything is over and Armageddon happens and and, uh, everything ends and disappears. That's not what it's talking about. What it's talking about is end as in purpose, meaning. What's the result? Where is this all heading? If God is our beginning, God also must be our end. Listen to what Romans chapter 11, verse 36 says. It says, for him, excuse me, for from him and through him and to him are all things. Do you hear the story of creation? From the beginning, Genesis chapter 1, the first two pages of the Bible to the end, the last two pages of the Bible, Revelation chapter 21, 22. This is what Romans 11 is pointing to. From him are all things. We know that. In the beginning, God. Through him are all things. We know that from Colossians, right? Jesus is there. Everything is by him and through him and for him. And then Romans also tells us, to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. (coughs) So as we said before, Genesis is the beginning of uh, not just the books of the law, the first five books, not just the entire Old Testament, but of the entire Bible. Genesis is the beginning of God's story of redemption for all time. And we know God is both our beginning and our end because the first page of the Bible points to God as creator of the heavens of the earth and the last page of the Bible points to God recreating all things, the heavens and the earth. The first creation took chaos and emptiness and darkness and created harmony, meaning, fullness, Light. As we'll talk about in a couple weeks, humanity brought sin into the world, which distorted all those things. But the new creation, the coming creation, that's been promised by God to be fulfilled through Jesus Christ, will be marked by Jesus conquering confusion and chaos. He'll, He'll be conquering emptiness. It will be conquering darkness that's caused by sin, and he'll be making all things new again. So what does it matter if God's beginning beginning of all things, that he must also be the end? The reality of God means that life only makes sense when we understand, (coughs) excuse me, when we understand that we come from him. That fullness only comes through him. And our only purpose is to live toward him. Only God can turn your chaos because of sin into something beautiful. Only God can turn your emptiness because of sin into fullness. Only God can turn your darkness because of sin to light. And he does it through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the story.
He's there at creation. Everything is made by him and through him. And it's all for him so that we might live toward him. In fact, the Bible's summed up in four words. Creation, sin, redemption, and restoration. This is the story of the entire Bible from page one to the end. Creation, where God brought all things into existence with a great purpose and love. Sin, where humanity chooses to disobey God and God is, is put in a position where he must curse the world but, and people, but he doesn't disengage, he doesn't leave, he doesn't, uh, he doesn't smite. Instead, with his curse comes a promise of blessing, a promise of future redemption, where our sin might be paid for and covered over and taken care of, not by our own power because we could never have the ability to do that, but by God's power through his son, Jesus Christ, who came to redeem the world and reconcile all things to himself, ultimately leading to the very end where he will restore all things. This is the story. The question is, what do you do between sin and redemption? If God is the beginning he must also be your end. And the invitation of the Bible is to put faith in Jesus, to trust that Jesus died on a cross to pay for sin so that we would not have to pay for it ourselves. Instead, he substituted himself in our place to make us at one with God again by faith. Ephesians chapter 2. And I'll close with this. Ephesians chapter 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world, <clears throat> according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. We were by nature children under wrath, as others were also. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ. Even though we were dead in trespasses, you are saved by grace. Verse 8 says, you're saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it's a gift from God, not by works, so that you cannot boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. You were created by God, and God desires to be your end. The only way you can be restored to relationship with God to have an end that ends in fullness and wholeness and completeness and eternal life with God is through faith in Jesus Christ. Would you turn to him today? I want to lead us in prayer. I'm going to invite Haley and her worship team to come and lead us in a time of response. If you'd like to put faith in Jesus today, to know for sure that you will have eternity with God in heaven, an eternity that begins right now in a relationship with God, to have your sins forgiven, to not be held against you any longer, then you might pray something along these lines that, that I'd like to lead you in. So if you would just shut out distractions around you, maybe close an eye, close your eyes and bow your head if you'd like. <clears throat> you can say silently 
a prayer to God similar to this. God, I understand now that you are my beginning. I come from you. I've made a mess of my life. I know I've sinned. I need a Savior. I need Jesus to forgive me. And I trust that because you gave Jesus as a sacrifice for sin on the cross, that he can forgive me. God, help me learn how to follow Jesus, to live a redeemed life, so that I can enjoy life the way you intended it, and to be with you forever. In Jesus' name, amen.